Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Game of Thrones. Work of Fiction. Here with my colleagues, Jane Garza. Hello. And Bud Cadell. Oh, hi. We're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps teams adapt new ways of working. Every month, we'll take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. So, Game of Thrones. Bud, tell us about Game of Thrones. Sure, I, I will. Game of Thrones is a reality competition show on HGTV where the goal is to install as many toilets as possible into a single, reasonable Milwaukee home. <laughs> but it is not. It's not. Is it musical chairs with toilets? <laughs> it's just not. Well, I mean, there's the occasional toilet in it, but toilets aren't really the main point of Game of Thrones. So you're saying I prepared for the wrong oh, show? Oh, man. Bud. I don't know what show you prepared for. <laughs> To be honest, <laughs> Game of Thrones is a fantasy set in a land that looks a lot like medieval England and Europe, where they scheme, make deals, and wage war in order to become the next ruler of the Seven Kingdoms and sit on the Iron Throne. So if you aren't caught up so far, turn back now for Ahead Be Spoilers. So I'm a huge Game of Thrones nerd. <laughs> so... That's my relationship with the show. Jane, Bud, what's your you know, relationship with I it? actually want you to define... So you said nerd. There are a lot of Game of Thrones nerds. But mm. you specifically... Tell us more about your okay. nerddom. Well, my nerddom is kind of the obsessive back-channel detailing to understand everything that's going on with the TV show. But I have to admit, I haven't read the books. Mm. So this episode will definitely focus on the TV show and not the books. Yeah. And I was also going to pinpoint that you're part of a few um, Facebook groups where there's like discussions. And because of that, we have some fun inputs from them on today's episode. Shout out to the small council on Facebook. Um, so I am, I'm a fan. I've definitely had my ups and downs with the series. There have been times where I've been like, uh, eh, I'm kind of getting over it because just like the story lost me or the violence and the rape. <laughs> like I kind of just got over that those storylines over and over again happening to women. And um, a little bit this last season, it felt like it was going in a lot of directions. So I, I, I started getting a little bit colder on it. But overall, I find it a really fun exercise in looking at how like really smart people play their political power in different ways. And we're going to talk more about that today. And I've read one of the books. I started with the first one and then just started watching the series and haven't read the rest <laughs> yet. For, for me, it lost me almost at the Red Wedding. Like I was super involved and then you made me fall in love with these people and then you murdered them. And so like ever since then, I've kind of wanted to break up with it, but it's like a, it's like a girlfriend I still see, you yeah. know, and I'm like right. on Facebook wondering like, what's, what's her, what's she up to now? <laughs> Maybe a little late night binge watching every once in a while. Yeah. What we're going to do today, since usually what we do is we analyze organizations through our, one of our frameworks, but today we're going to be talking mainly about leadership. So we're going to start by thinking about what's the environment 
around the people that people are operating in for both their houses, their kingdoms, the what what's happening in the world mm-hmm. around them. And then we're also going to talk about um, how the leaders themselves operate in terms of what's their purpose and motivation, what's their vision, how they come to power, what benefits do they provide for their followers, what are some of their strengths and weaknesses. And maybe at the end, we'll have some advice in case they need even more counselors and consultants around them. Mm-hmm. Nice. So what's up, Westeros? So Westeros is, of course, the the area, the, the main area where the game where Game of Thrones is set. Mm-hmm. Is the world just one continent? It seems as though. Mm. You know, the world is not just one continent, bud. Really? No, there's there's Westeros. I'm a limited viewer. <laughs> I like to see the world in a very narrow way. There's actually other continents. There's Essos to the east. Oh, but they're all sort of like it's like Europe, basically. Yeah. It's not like mm. we get that far right. afield with And there's some strange else. orbit around the sun that causes their strange winters. There's a big discussion right. on Reddit about it. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, who even yeah. knows what's up with that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this is a world where summer lasts for a generation, for a generation. And at a certain point, that certainly in the time where this is set, winter is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is like the literal environment. If we think about the, if we think of these like houses as companies or you know leaders in companies vying for power, the other piece of it is I think they each see their environment a little bit differently, or at least like Cersei sees it very differently from Jon Snow, who's like the Ice King. I say that right. The Ice King is coming. We have to protect ourselves. And Cersei's point of view is she's like, although she realizes that those the creatures are real, she's that's not her number one priority. That's not really her surrounding environment or like the the competition for the throne that she sees. She's still just obsessed with the day to day power grab she can make. I think this show is about climate change. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> she's she's living in her comfortable environment. She's not thinking about the larger consequences to the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is a world that is uh, uh, adaptive. Lots of things are changing by the time that we're introduced to the show. Um, so I think I think that underlying uh, chaos is really what leads all of the dynamics in the show and the mm-hmm. leaders themselves. So. Yeah. So Definitely. the environment that they're in with that impending doom coming from the threat from the north yeah. of the undead. Yeah, it forces <laughs> action. The dead, actually, yes, technically the dead. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's kind of forcing, but but the climate change thing is that some people are really acknowledging that, and some people are just going business as usual mm-hmm. and fighting for status. Mm-hmm. There you go. You brought my metaphor to life. You <laughs> made it actually not sound dumb. Thank you. <laughs> So that's part, definitely part of the environment. So w- winter is coming. Um, there's also been a power vacuum. So when the, uh, King Robert Baratheon died in season one, that's what started this current iteration of everybody vying to be the um, leader of the Seven Kingdoms yeah. and having and laying right. a rightful claim. So in season one, which we're mostly not talking about today, we are it, there started out in peacetime, but now it's a time of war. Yeah. yeah, and it was relative peacetime for quite a while because Robert overthrew the Mad King and created some era, some limited era of peace. And then shit went down. <laughs> That's right. And one of the, one of the things we were talking about in, with this is that there may be a distinction between how you lead in peacetime versus wartime. 
I'm thinking about that book from a couple of years ago, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm-hmm. They definitely make a a case for um, certain con- you know conditions uh, for leadership in business now is wartime versus peacetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, don't you guys see Ned Stark as being sort of on the cusp of that and like the before and after and what happens to him? Does that resonate at all with you? Him being on the cusp of wartime. Yeah, peacetime, mm-hmm. wartime, sort of feeling that yeah, instability yeah. the most. Yeah. Yeah. He was kind of sacrificed too. He was the, his sacrifice was the first act of war in a way. Right. Yeah. What would be like a real, like aside from actual war, what would be like a real example that we can give in the real world of peacetime versus wartime leadership for an organization? Well, in the book I reference, I talk about it in terms of, are you fighting for market share? Mm-hmm. Are you fighting for your existence in market share? So perhaps you're in the earlier days of your startup, you're still looking for product market fit. This might be wartime versus peacetime. Yeah. Right. Like GE right now is a really good example mm-hmm. of that because Jack Welch created this great era of prosperity. Jeff Emmel inherited it. But when he left, it's become just pure chaos over there. They've gone through like two different CEOs in the last two years. Right. So it could be internal struggles also make it wartime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, To me, I was thinking about Uber and how, like, to me, to me, it feels like internally it's wartime, but they're trying to portray the message that it's peacetime externally. They're like, no, no, Mm -hmm. we have turned a new leaf and we're back to normal. But everyone's like, everything's fine. Nothing (laughs) to see here. Right. Exactly. But everyone is still fully feeling the wartime. Like if you're actually a part of that culture, you're still feeling the toxicity. It's not necessarily back to, Yeah stasis yet so how do you think people would lead different how do you see people leading differently on the show and in the world in wartime versus peacetime one of the things that might be different is how you make decisions um meaning like the speed at which you need to make a decision how many people you involve in that decision making if you're at wartime there's like a you're making a decision in a a state that is that requires action right away potentially Um, And so therefore you might just be leading on your own, making decisions on your own, or it might be like a core group of leaders working together to, to direct the company. Whereas in peacetime, that might be more opportunity for group decision-making involving others and like innovating and how you progress your product or your company, that kind of thing. I also wonder if your lieutenants are even more important in wartime, because what we see in the show is, you know, each of the characters by season seven have a really strong cabinet of people they rely on. But early in the beginning, I mean, the whole reason that Ned Stark is brought in is because Robert Baratheon's starting to notice things might be changing. And so he realizes he needs someone near him who's loyal and brings strengths mm-hmm. that he doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a bit of like, you also react to, there are less things that you can trust during wartime and you react to that and how you, you lead as well. So it's like bringing your, your center of trusted people closer and, moving forward in that way. It's a little bit more fear-based, I feel like, the decisions that you're making. Yeah, the enemy is very salient Mm -hmm. rather than trying to, you know, a different metaphor where maybe you're growing your garden. Right. Okay, so let's start talking about the leaders who are currently in play on Game of Thrones. Let's start with Cersei. Mm. And when, when we leave her in season seven, she's the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms. So how did um, how did she come to power? Well, she was married to Robert, very much against her will, and then she was raised in power by her father Tywin as well. So she was raised for it and uh, 
sort of sold into it. Totally. And, and then this is a world in which the aristocrats are the ones who get to rule. You don't really have a lot of Abraham Lincolns coming up from the lob cabin in this right. world to figure it out. Right. That's true. Mm-hmm. But she did some... Um, she ensured her rule at the end of the previous season by basically killing everybody who might oppose her in one fell swoop. Yeah. She was a corporate raider, I guess is what we're saying. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that did work for her. Like she is technically um, the ruler of that specific house, but her actual grip to power is not very strong because there are a lot of houses that are like standing behind Jon Snow um, certain ones that are like completely extinct due to her work. So it's a it's a bit of a tenuous status. Yeah, yeah you nailed it. I mean, about. she's consolidated power, but it's far less power than the Iron Throne really used to command. That's true. Also, I think she might be the first woman to sit on it for her. Oh, definitely. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've, one thing that that reminds me of is when we think about how women come to power, that often they come th- from being associated with powerful guys. Mm, you know that, and that was something that came up, and I, and I do not want to conflate Cersei and Hillary Clinton, okay, <laughs> for the record. But that's but you've that, already done it. But now. I've done it now. <laughs> so 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 that was a, a a charge against Hillary Clinton, which was that um, we just weren't used to the ways that women often come up into power, which is often by being married to powerful men, mm. and that's something that is true for Cersei here, and mm. that that is not that strikes some people as not a legitimate way of coming to power. That's interesting because hmm. it's an interesting thing because I also think about like how Cersei came to power is she had to like beg, borrow, and steal is the term, but it's more like lie, kill, do whatever you can to get there, like basically crawl your way there because there was no chance it was going to happen naturally for her. And so therefore she is like a monstrous leader, but it's because that was the only way she could get there really by being a monster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm giving her too much credit. <laughs> yeah, I I don't. There's definitely like she always goes thirty percent further, right? Like she yeah, grabs true. power and then always turns whatever ill was given to her on other people, but like thirty percent harder. Yeah. Um. There's an unnecessary very... amount of drama in how she exacts revenge, for example. Right. Right. She reminds me of um. There was a book, The Psychopath Test, mm-hmm. and there's Al Dunlop. Who was the CEO that John Ronson, the author of the the book, administers the test to? And he was known as like going from company to company to company, exacting his power and taking over. Mm. Um, and I, like I was thinking, who are the real world emblems or examples of some of these characters? And that's what came up for me. Mm. You know, it's really interesting because we've certainly seen a sociopathic streak in the Lannisters before. I'm thinking Joffrey here, mm-hmm. yeah. but but there is. Uh, sort of an old saw about how sociopaths do really well in corporate environments. Yeah. You know, I say, you know, dumb sociopaths go to jail, smart sociopaths go to the boardroom. Yeah. And Joffrey seems like he was born with that DNA and maybe Cersei is more like she was shaped by her. You know, maybe, you know, she had some proclivity. Nurture for him. Yeah. As opposed to nature for him. She did have a rough road. It's an interesting question of how people become leaders, whether they're born, to what extent they're born or made. There's an amazing scene that she has with Littlefinger where he, you know, he assumes power. He says uh, information is power because that's like his whole game is like getting secrets and transacting them. And then she has her guards seize him and put a knife to his throat. 
prominent families often forget a simple truth. I found. And which truth is that? Knowledge is power. Seize him. Cut his throat. Stop. Oh, wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Step back three paces. Turn around. Close your eyes. And at the last second, she stops him and she says, no, power is power. Yes. And that seems to be her entire drive. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people today who believe, you know, in, in a place like Westeros, it's, it's where life is nasty, brutish, and short. It's easy to go for that. But there's a lot of people who that still resonates with today. Do you guys think that now connecting wartime and peacetime and Cersei, do you think that she's actually the most attuned leader to wartime? I asked that question because mm. she has like the quote of the entire show early on, which is when you play the Game of Thrones, you either win or die. <laughs> Does she know the right. game better than anyone else's? And is that why she's on the Iron Throne as of now? I mean, yeah, her her like way of wielding power is as if it's always wartime. You're always you always have to do every single thing that you can to come out on top, which is not necessarily every other leader's process in in the show that's true yeah. and in, in a certain sense if if somebody's playing that way then that does actually up the game so that everybody's playing that way yeah so i don't know if she's more attuned but for her there is no such thing as peacetime mm. she's only known war what do you think she does for her followers does she provide any benefit for her followers i think yeah we might disagree about this one because i was i was uh looking over your notes and cheating <laughs> before we started this <sighs> And she seems so, uh, like, just non and uninterested in her followers, right? And just takes it as a given yeah. that by her name, people should follow her. And yeah. I don't see that she gives a lot or cares much. Yeah, I would agree. I think she creates um, classes. So she has, like, the people who are closest to her, if they do her bidding, they get to have nicer living quarters and all of that. So there's, like, very, very upper class. But then there are... Um, there are seasons in which the the actual like town surrounding her is completely poor and she's not giving them anything. And it also brings up the question of like, what is it? What's the purpose of a leader? What should she be doing? Because isn't that kind of the purpose is protecting your kingdom and not just keeping them alive, but keeping them comfortable too, in some way? Yeah. I mean, can you as a leader get away with just pursuing power and not actually doing anything to improve life for the people mm. that you're responsible for? Is that something you can get away with? Sounds like uh, some organizations we've been near. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. Agreed. True. Yeah, I guess the question is like, how long can that last? And will it eventually not work out for you? I mean, Mm -hmm. Cersei has had her ups and downs, but there have been times where she's been walking through the streets naked, had like fruits thrown at her because that was her lowest power moment, but her time that she was closest to her, her people and I think she got to see, like, well, this is how they feel about you. There's no loyalty behind behind them. Yeah. I wonder, how do, what do you guys think about this? The question of how long can it last? I have seen leaders been able to sustain power for power's sake, even at the cost of their followers, in declining mm-hmm. markets and categories. When there was just mm-hmm. a natural assumption that, like, I'm managing 
a declining market, I can get like I've seen leaders get away with that more. Do you think it's because it's just about survival and the status quo? Let's just mm -hmm. ride. Let's ride this out as long as we can make it work. I think so. I, you know, and you, the declines you can always attribute to something else, like culture's changing or consumer expectations are changing, and we've just got this thing, and so that they can, you know, again, I think yeah. it's, it reflects Cersei in that she consolidated power, but it's a diminished power. Yeah. And that's supported by, there was just a study about how um, when you're choosing a leader, if you're given the option, if if you're asked, like, who would you like to lead you um, in order to make sure that your team succeeds and doesn't fail, you will choose the person who is, like, less warm and friendly, but very calculated. So you'll definitely choose the person who's, like, a little bit more driven and calculated over the the warm, friendly leader that will potentially keep you happier or keep you growing. Certainly something in a time of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And another thing is she is a she is a Lannister at this point. And Lannisters always pay their debts. Yeah. That's I think one of their main ways of wielding power is that transactional thing of you help me and I will reward you with wealth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would also just say that Yanni Bloomberg at CNBC called Cersei the strongest leader on the show. <laughs> I don't know Yanni that well, but he agrees with me. So we like. So we're Yanni. friends. <laughs> yeah, I think the Iron Bank people actually applauded her too and said, "Well, you apparently learned you so much from Tywin. You're better than Tywin." But of course, mm -hmm. she's also taking care of them. Yeah, very handsome. Right, right. right. So, um, what advice would you give Cersei? Uh, don't sleep with your brother so much. <laughs> General life advice. Right. As we get to this category life too, tip. it's the, you know, I, I've never given advice to leaders I've seen naked multiple <laughs> times. And so it's a little uncomfortable. I think she's, you know, she is eroding. She's eroded the trust in her lieutenants aside from the mountain, mm -hmm. right? Who's just mm -hmm. a zombie at this point. Yeah. Um, her relationship with her brother as being her like closest advisor is broken. Yeah. by this stage so she is like without supporters and defenders and advisors that's true she's kind of out there on her own and she's a formidable enemy but she's still a lone enemy yeah yeah so potentially finding a way to expand her circle of trust i think would do her well it's really hard to lead when you have you don't trust anyone and no one trusts you like who are you going to then make deals with and repay their debts down the road it's potentially. true true it's hard for even a very strong leader to go without having alliances and having people who have their back. So let's now turn our attention to the other really strong female leader in this show, which is uh, Daenerys. Danny. Danny. <laughs> Khaleesi. Breaker of Chains. It's only about 10,000 different. She has, doesn't she have like titles? She does. Like I was trying to think of another one. You guys took like the, the main one. <laughs> yeah. We'll be here for another 45 minutes. <laughs> You stand in the presence of Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rightful Queen of the Andals and the First Men, protector of the Seven Kingdoms, the Mother of Dragons, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, the Unburnt, the Breaker of Chains. This is Jon Snow. He's king in the north. So she's she's not mo I mean, you want don't want to say that anybody in this show is not motivated by power, but that's not really her main 
reason for having skin in the game. No. So um, an interesting thing about Danny, I was talking with friends last night about like, which of the leaders would you actually want to follow? Like, let's say they're, they're running a fictional company. Who would you actually want to work for? And everyone that I was with said Danny because they were like, at least she has like a social cause too. She's, you know, freeing slaves. She's doing good for the world. Um, and that was what tied them to her. So I don't think it's just a power game for her at all. That's true. She has a vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in this vision, people are un- under her are not getting crushed by the wheel. Right. She seems like a literal transformational leader. She's definitely what I would call a transformational leader. Yeah, she fits that description. Do you want to give a description a bit, Kim? Of course. A transformational leader, since this is something from my dissertation, is known (laughs) as, um, is a person who makes transformations in her followers. So not by inspiring them, by being a role model, by she helps them do more than they would be able to do alone and really knuckle down and make things happen that seemed previously impossible. Yeah, riding in there on her dragon. <laughs> yeah, so That's the first symbol of it, right? Like previously impossible, we thought all dragons were dead. Nope, I bore three of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surviving fires, mm-hmm. getting out of every, every possibly lethal thing that she gets herself into. Mm-hmm. And she really is kind of started as the underdog. She was kind of the underestimated sister who was just. Uh, um, Again, sold uh, off. Sold off, who was a pawn. And so she she hasn't, in a way, she hasn't really, even though she has this very bombastic presence about how she's the rightful queen, mm-hmm. she has, in some ways hasn't forgotten where she came from. Yeah. Also, that totally goes against my earlier argument about Cersei. She also had no chance at being a queen and she did it without killing and lying and every form of deceit possible so that's true yeah. that's true two different ways to power mm-hmm. here although danny's also way to power was being married to Khal drogo yeah that's true and that's where she sort of apprenticed yeah. yeah i think the idea or the question of role models for each of these leaders is also an interesting topic and she definitely picked up some of the aggression from Khal drogo and she's brought it and made it her own but like her first instinct of you always have to bend the knee to her and things like that, that like clearly comes from her experiences with them. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of the Dothraki methods still, mm-hmm. still with her. I wonder how much, how many hearts she still eats. <laughs> it seems to work. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think, like, let's talk strengths and weaknesses. You know, we still, her vision is definitely one of her strengths. So what do you think what do you think a blind spot or a weakness that she's got? Well, I think so I think she does a lot of leading with intuition. She makes decisions sometimes off of things that she feels will be the right decision, which could be potentially harmful down the road because that can't always serve you well. But so far it has. Yeah, the question of weakness. So you like right now she's riding into season 7 with a lot of strength, right? And it's hard to have seen what her weaknesses are. I mean, earlier in the show, perhaps her mission or her like social cause could have been a weakness at times because she was, you know, unlike a Cersei, she wasn't thinking about power. She was thinking about like, I can't remember the name of the territory that she gave up for a bit of time because she left and her attention shifted. Um, You know, I think that was because she was, you know, off onto the next thing. So maybe there's a little bit of attention paid to it, but that's, you know, it's hard. It's hard for Danny to find, exactly what her weaknesses are for me. 
Yeah. she's That's also kind of a peacetime wartime issue, but it turned on its head because she's really good in, like Cersei, she's really good in wartime. And mm -hmm. she kind of struggled there on how to rule rather than how to conquer. Yeah. What do you think, what, what, what have you, is there a, like a current real world um, analog to somebody who's got this incredible vision and is a super transformational leader that you've picked out? I thought of Ricardo Simler of Simcoe, probably saying his name incorrectly, mm -hmm. but um, you know, he's known for creating like flat organizations and for being like for leaning into egalitarianism at work. And so I see her in a workplace environment like that. And he's become like the symbol for this kind of work. Mm. He also has a great book where he's doing this like weird squat on top of a desk as the cover. <laughs> yeah. What about you guys? Anyone else? Oh, I wanted to pick a, like a female leader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it's, it's hard because there's leading with a really strong vision. The women do really great in these inspirational role model roles. The transformational leadership works really well for women because mm -hmm. it doesn't require them to go counter to the sort of traditionally more masculine role of being a super strong iron hand kind of leader. Mm -hmm. So by inspiring people and helping them develop and, and moving toward a vision, that's a, that's a style of leadership that um, a lot of women really rock. Mm -hmm. But also, it doesn't tend to create as many, you know, cult figures necessarily. Hmm. Yeah, I think of, um, I think it's Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that had an unfortunate end. Yeah, but she was heralded as the new Steve Jobs, um, and she was seen as like, you know, a a blinding force of vision in a category that was desperately lacking it. Hmm. Yeah, if that had worked out, that would have. Yeah, you got totally it. Been it. You got to actually take over the world. Those dragons have to be real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well put. What advice would you want to give her? Again, don't sleep with your brother. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I don't know. Not going to. I mean, I'm like worried about the leaders of Westeros being so inbred. Yeah. Maybe that's where all of this, these, this strife is coming from. Who knew this advice would be applicable for so many leaders? Yeah. <laughs> It's hard because she does – one of the things that I've noticed about Nanny is she really does learn. So she mm -hmm. doesn't let the same mistake happen to her twice. That's something I'd say would be in common to everybody still left alive on season seven for one thing. So it's harder to see repeated. I would – I would okay, the advice I might give Danny is to understand who Cersei is, is in the game that she's playing, which is a very different game than John and Danny are playing. So mm -hmm. at the end of season seven – Cersei has promised that she's going to go fight the war up north with them, and she completely lied. But they took it because they both come from role models that modeled like order and loyalty and truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, truth. That's such mm -hmm. a big one. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. that would be what I would say. Danny's blind spot is is that assuming that what she what you see is what you get, and that's really not how they play it in yeah. King's Landing. No. Yeah, I, I think she's like generally a good read of people, but yeah, I think that could get her. In trouble with Cersei because Cersei's fairly unpredictable and and basically her main motive is her own power and her own survival. Yeah, I don't really see Danny doing a lot of lying in order to get what she wants. But mm -hmm. no, so lie more. <laughs> <laughs> no, if it's lie more as much as be aware that people might be lying and fainting. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and then that brings us to the last person we could really 
that is a major player. You know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what does Jon Snow actually do? What does he know, though? Mormont himself chose Jon to be his steward. He saw something in Jon, and now we've all seen it too. He may be young, but he's the commander we turned to when the night was darkest. Yeah, he's got um he has he has sort of a almost like a servant leadership thing yeah. going on. He's kind of drafted into this. It wasn't necessarily his own love of power as much right. as he's just descending to do what needs to be done and he's in a position to do it. Yeah, do you think he feels energized at all by being a leader or by his purpose? Danny seems at her core very energized by yeah. her mission. But I what do you guys think about John, or what do you think actually makes him excited to wake up in the morning and be a leader? Yeah, I no, I don't think he's energized by leadership. I think he is a very reluctant leader. Um, in terms of what does energize him, I think he has like very he t- tends to take a logical approach to solving a problem, and I think to him it's like great more people to help me take that logical approach and and make sure the world doesn't end. Yeah. No, I think, Kim, you were de- dead on with he is the archetype of a servant leader here. Yeah, so the servant leader in this case is a lot of people who are drafted into leadership do this. and they're, So they have a mission, but it's not so much about inspiring a worldwide movement as much as just doing what needs to be done mm-hmm. so that people survive. So the yeah. mission, his mission is almost like a private mission right? rather mm-hmm. than one that you have to enroll, a, a vision you have to enroll others in. Mm-hmm. And also, and that suits for being a king in the north, where they're really super into personal freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's not telling people they they will. He's not making promises to people. He's not telling people they're going to get uh, their way. What they are going to get is autonomy out of this if they're lucky. They're yeah. the libertarians of Westeros. <laughs> the libertarians <laughs> of Westeros definitely. Do you think in the north? Do you think in that way he's also could like a tinge of a transactional leader? That's an interesting question. There is a certain amount of transaction because he's always bringing it back to survival. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we want to band together. It's more like we have to band together. Right. Right. And there doesn't seem to be an after the war reign for Jon Snow. I was just thinking that, like, is he, does he have any use in peacetime? Yeah. And would he even, I I feel like his response would be like, why, why would I be at the throne? (laughs) You don't need me. Maybe leave that to Sansa. She seems to like operations. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because he didn't really seek becoming Lord Commander. Someone, he, someone else nominated him, and he narrowly won. And then he took a very Ned Stark approach to it, of like, yes. well, I have to do it. Just like you know, when he was brought back uh, to life, and he sentenced the people who killed him, and but he's the one who swung the sword, just like Ned in the very beginning. You understand why I did it? John said he was a deserter. But do you understand why I had to kill him? Oh, where's the old way? The man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Yeah. So there's like, there's, he doesn't. There's a lot of duty here and he's yeah. not really having a very good time with it. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's not even like, like Danny at least has fabulous dresses. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. He always looks kind of like a wet dog. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> A beautiful wet dog. <laughs> I'll say it. You two weren't going to say it. I will agree. I will agree with that. So eventually, it's going to come down between these three. These three are going to really clash. Yeah. 
Is it too early to ask who you think might win this Game of Thrones? Ooh, good question. The Night King. The Night King. Oh my God, we forgot about the Night King. <laughs> I mean, by sheer military power. And no need yeah. to really be what we would consider a leader these days, which is the use of influence to move and mobilize people. He just, they just do it. He's like every leader's like dream. Yeah. It's true. If everybody could just be the Night King and immediately get their way with everybody and have all the followers they want because they raised them from the dead automatically. Yeah. There's that great scene where he's just sort of like staring at Jon Snow and raises all of all of the fallen soldiers and Jon is like, what can I even do about this? this is- yeah. The Night King runs an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> who would you back? Assuming you got to serve somebody, who would you back? Well, it kind of seems to me... Like, it's going to be some sort of combination between Danny and John moving forward. Like, their partnership is what I would back. To me, that seems like it could be a winning team. But also, I was hesitating in your at your earlier question because I am having trouble, like, separating between actual, like, business advice and what I want to happen in the show and <laughs> yeah. who I want to win. <laughs> we don't want to win. We don't want to live in a world in which Cersei wins. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. George R. R. Martin, though. Just lives to crush your hopes. It's so <laughs> That's true. Totally true. It's so true. <laughs> I don't know. I think there is this, and maybe this is too like into the show and not enough uh, advice. But I think there's this question of how these leaders, especially John and Danny, will expend their resources to accomplish the mission of sort of saving everyone. But then, will they have the resources left over to really capture the throne? I think using your resources is a big question that leaders mm. have to to confront. And know that you know sustainability of forces feels like a big question for me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I know we sometimes see, we you know I can see some political analogies to what you're saying with that too. Also, like getting the throne maybe of more use than keeping the throne for sometimes campaign mm-hmm. in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. for example, hmm. that's interesting. It's interesting to think about Cer- Cersei and her um, resources too, just because she. Like we earlier talked about, she tends to exact revenge at double the size of what happened to her, but it all could have been avoided if she didn't underestimate certain people or like planned a little bit better or, you know, didn't create enemies everywhere. So those resources didn't necessarily have to be expended and you didn't have to go about the things that way. It's just the way that things fell after she made her, her moves. You know, I don't think that anybody's really operating at ruthlessly peak efficiency here. Right. (laughs) True. And Cersei can always just buy more cell swords, like freelancers. <laughs> She's got a big freelancer army. She can staff up whenever yeah. she needs to. Yeah. Now she has a new she... child growing inside of her. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have a question. Who do you think has the best lieutenant and why? Mm. So Jon Snow has folks like Sansa, Davos, Samwell. Um, Cersei, Jaime, the Mountain, uh, Daenerys has uh, Tyrion, Jorah, Grey Worm, Missandei. Missandei. That's a tough one. Hyundai. Sorry. <laughs> Who would you pick as your lieutenant out of that group? I like Danny's group. Like I think they they have a good teamsmanship going on too. Like where they're actually working together to solve problems collaboratively. 
True, and they're a very diverse team. Yeah. yeah. It's pulling that off. They're off in different lands, different right. circumstances. Right. And she seems, she really does listen to them, too. Yeah. John has a listening problem at times. <laughs> very true. Um, especially listening to women. But Yeah, uh, that's true. He's having a little trouble with Santa there. Yeah. He's actually just trying to help. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, Daenerys will listen sort of to anybody. I mean, like even a yeah, one of her former enemies. Yeah, Dan- Daenerys really takes counsel well, yeah. and also says no at the right time too. And she's forgiving because Tyrion made a huge blunder in season seven, or mm-hmm. yeah, and so she still like welcomed him back. Yeah, other leaders, he'd be dead, right? <laughs> Probably in some ghastly way. Or John, I think, would maybe just like turn his back on that person. Yeah, shrug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you know the woman. Uh, the witch who saved him. Yeah. And then he just, you know. He has no use for her. No. So I think Danny wins as far as the, making best use of her team. Do we think she's actually good for peacetime? I think so. I think, I mean, it, based on the decisions she's made so far, I think her goal is to make, improve things for her followers. And that is a peacetime mission. Yeah. So she's the only one who really has a vision for peacetime because John just wants Everybody to survive. Right. And it's never peacetime for Cersei. Mm-hmm. Devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. So she definitely cares about improving things for her followers, but it's her base. So she has clearly a base. She she clearly plays to one aspect of culture and society. And, the downtrodden. Right. Yeah. And then everyone else, the existing power structure, she kind of could get rid of and not really care about. Which to me says a lot of instability, potentially. That's an interesting point because she does say she, you know, she wants to break the wheel and there's everybody else, all the whole aristocratic and consulting class there are very invested in keeping the wheel going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think John would be a status quo sort of leader in many ways. Yeah. He's got a lot of mm. laissez-faire aspects. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. She's a disruptor and <laughs> who knows what will happen. It's true. Volatility. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've wrapped that up about as much as we can do. So thanks for listening to Work of Fiction. Check us out at workoffiction.fm or tell us what movie organization or leader you think we should analyze next at heart at nobl.io. Company Street Movies and TV.